Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the Data Barracks Business Continuity Podcast. I've spent the last few months interviewing leading practitioners of business continuity and disaster recovery, or BC and DR for short, from organisations like The Economist, BP, Fujitsu, The London Fire Brigade and a bunch of others. I'm hoping that over the course of the coming weeks, the interviews will provide a more human angle to what can often be a very complex and abstract area of study. BC and DR are often maligned as difficult or expensive or just a bit dull. And so, to kick things off with a bang, we're going to start with a history lesson. I promise this is going to be more interesting than you think. One thing that became clear throughout my interviews was that people come at business continuity from a lot of different angles. In casual conversation, everyone agrees on the definition of continuity. You think about your risks and how you would recover from them ahead of time. But once you get into detail of how to prioritise those risks, or how comprehensive those plans should be, opinions start to differ. There are some really obvious reasons for this. I spoke to people from different industries, each with different cultural norms and legal obligations. But something I wasn't expecting is how clearly people remember why they got into the business in the first place. There was a penny-dropping moment for almost everyone I spoke to. For some, it was an epiphany that continuity and recovery existed at all. For some, it was first-hand experience of a disastrous event. And for some, it was just a sincere urge to help people. And in some cases, that penny-dropping moment informed an entire career trajectory. So for John Robinson of Anoni, that penny-dropping moment was simply realising that continuity existed at all. Um, I fell, as most people, you fall into, the, into business continuity. It's not something you know about instinctively when you, when you come to it. Um, I was working at back in 1987, I think, and I just finished a piece of IT work for them. And uh, the CEO came and said, are you off then? And I said, yes. And he said, well, before you go, can you do this? And he handed me their uh, global standard for disaster recovery, as it was then. And naturally, you say yes. So I did. And I read it and I thought, I can do better than that. <laughs> so I did. Um, I then went and did the same. I, I finished their continuity plans. I then went and ran a test for a company called Conda down in Winchester. The upshot of that was I got a full page article in Computer Weekly. Now, John came to continuity in relatively comfortable circumstances. But for some people, like Vicky Gavin, who is head of business continuity and information security at The Economist, the realization came in a more stressful situation. Uh, how did I get started? 9-11. <laughs> um, literally, I was working in security operations uh, at a big investment bank, and the business continuity team sat beside me and my team. And when the plane hit the building, they all panicked. And the, it was clear that it could be done better. Let's go that way. It, it's just there was a, a lot, there were a lot of opportunities for improvement and particularly around automation. So everything they were doing was very paper-based. Um, and for me, the overriding memory is somebody standing at the photocopier for the next four hours making copies of business continuity plans, um, which seemed to me the wrong way to approach it. And so in the wake of 9-11, um, I was asked to become acting head of security in New York. And that involved also um, looking at the business continuity function and, and managing that. And that was really my first taster. And to get a real idea of what's important 
Um, post 9-11, New York was the place to be. And as I say, just looking at it and thinking, I could do that better, I think. <laughs> it's really funny you mentioned that. Someone else we've spoken to. That was John from Just Now was in exactly that kind of position of watching it from the outside and thinking actually things weren't being done that well and he didn't necessarily have a whole load of uh, uh, training or, or any kind of qualifications to, to go into it with it was mostly ambition and just a general sense that things could be better yeah it, it's I mean, in my opinion business continuity is a very practical um, area of study I mean so many people and especially the consultants will make it sound very very complicated it's really simple. It's all about making sure that the business have plans in place so that if something bad happens, they don't go out of business. It's, it's really, really straightforward. There's a huge amount of organization required and, and looking at details and analysis, but these are not insurmountable tasks. People do them all day, every day. Um, and I think, I think that's what I saw. I saw people that were dealing with huge numbers of details, but in a very manual way. And and that's, to me, I mean, that that's what I looked at and saw, no, 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 a little bit of automation here would make this a lot simpler. As it turned out, a lot of people referenced huge public events like 9-11 as a kind of catalyst that brought continuity and disaster recovery to their attention. But for some people like Paul Butcher, who is a continuity consultant at Fujitsu, it was the limitations of business IT in its infancy that revealed the need for continuity at a technology level. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't uh, as reliable. I mean, the, the amount of downtime that um, the equipment suffered. Uh, we, I mean, those days you used to have an engineer permanently on site uh, in his workshop and, uh, yeah, disk drive gone down or tape drive not working or paper tape reader, if you remember that far back, uh, you know. Uh, failed, then of course you can't get the uh, the data into the uh, into the system and then process it. The the company I work for it was a construction company, so we had to turn around payroll on a uh, sort of weekly basis. So if we didn't, then obviously the guys out on the, as it was building the uh, the NEC at the time, um, if they didn't get paid, then they down tools. So it's it's very important to to keep that going. So that sort of began to um, resonate with me. Um, if you know if we were down and we've got workers out there that are relying on a pay packet that if they don't they stop which means that we don't build whatever it is we're building uh, which again could potentially have an impact on the company maybe there's penalty payments so it became ooh, escalating uh, sure. so even at that sort of you know early stage you began sort of hmm. on the other hand Stuart Dukid EMEA continuity manager at BP came to continuity from a more human perspective from the outset yeah. Okay. So my first sort of foray into the continuity world was 96 when I worked for a small uh, visitor attraction in Newcastle. Um, basically, I was reviewing the fire evacuation plan and that's when I realized, well, that's actually only just the first stage, getting people out and getting people safe. The next stage is then what is it you do as far as keeping the business going and the business running or what if? Uh, somebody became injured or whatever during the evacuation. And it's just really sort of going through and sort of thinking about what the next stage from the evacuation drill is, uh, was my first uh, introduction. Now, Matt Hogan also takes a people-centric approach uh, with a particular concern around public health. Now, that's not surprising. He has a history as emergency planning officer for the ambulance service. And today he's resiliency officer at the London Fire Brigade. 
He's also previously worked as the Olympics Resilience Manager for London 2012, and he's had an interesting route to continuity. It's been a bit um, of a crazy route, to be honest. Uh, I think my first sort of exposure to the business continuity emergency planning sort of industry um, was actually through my dad. He was working as an engineer in a hospital and particularly focused uh, at the time on uh, the arrangements that they needed to take for the Millennium Bug um, uh, and what the impacts of that potentially could be on hospital equipment. Um, so that, that was my sort of um, first view into the world, really. Uh, and although it didn't really amount to anything, you know, there was all those docudramas about planes falling out of the sky and, you know, financial institutions crumbling and people's washing machines going haywire. And I thought, oh, that's quite exciting. And then a year later, uh, I was in uh, New York, flew back from uh, New York on the 10th of September. And then the following day was watching the news, obviously. And um, I, I was sort of captivated by a horrendous situation, but I was really sort of um, taken with the response to it. I, I was amazed that um, both, both the sort of public sector had got this really well worked out response, but also seeing sort of businesses, communities coming together and, and sort of supporting each other. I thought that was really cool. Um, the, there was an example of AT&T, the phone provider out there, um, just dishing out loads of mobiles to, to people that wanted to call their families or whatever. And I thought, actually, that's uh, there's something in that that I find really interesting. So I went to university, I went to um, Aberystwyth to study geography and sort of knew throughout the degree that I wanted to get into this world of, of emergency management. So I did some placements with uh, an organisation that at the time was called the Health Protection Agency, it's Public Health England now, and they were looking at mapping disease outbreaks and things. So my first proper job um, was working for uh, one of the large hospitals in Birmingham to review their major incident plan. Uh, and then I sort of worked my way around in the NHS for about five or six years. Uh, and then in about eight months before the swine flu pandemic in 2009, became the pandemic flu lead at the ambulance service. And I thought, oh, that's fine. Flu's never going to happen. Uh, and then obviously it did. Uh, and, and that was, it, it was a very, very long year uh, of making sure that, you know, the ambulance service could, had got plans in place to respond. Fortunately, the, the flu, the swine flu wasn't too severe. So it, it wasn't the top end that we were planning to. Um, but obviously having to sustain the normal business and provide that assurance that they could step it up if they needed to. That, that was, I guess, my first big thing that I was involved in. So I thought the fact that Matt became interested in continuity around the time of the Millennium Bug was really interesting, given the disparity between the expected consequences and the eventual reality of how that played out. Uh, now we're going to return to how the anticipation and the actual experience of disasters differ in later episodes, but for now I thought it was a good introduction to Paul Codre, who founded KCL Consulting after years of working in the ambulance service. We spoke to Paul about the disasters that shaped his understanding of recovery and the emphasis he places on human safety. Uh, now, I can only speak to Paul on the phone, so uh, apologies for the sound. I've been in the ambulance service since I was 16. I've been in for 32 years. I started as a cadet and I worked my way through operationally uh, pre the days when there was paramedics through to being a paramedic and an operational manager and... Uh, emergency control centre manager and a trainer. My first real experience of any sort of uh, major incidents was goes back to the 1985 
Manchester Airport fire, which was my first real experience, really, of any sort of major disaster. What that actually gave me was my first real taste of multi-casualty type incidents that was closer to home, even though I'd seen and obviously been aware of disasters that had happened around the world. I hadn't really paid a great deal of attention to it until it actually happened nearer to where I worked. So I kind of, I always look back and think, you know, was that really the first starting point in my of my experience? So I should, should I say, I actually got a bit of an aptitude towards disaster management. I know that might sound a bit bad, but actually it's something in terms of resilience, emergency management, business continuity management that, you know, pe- people either get or they don't get or they like or they don't like. And I think that was really the, the starting point. Prior to that, the uh, training and the preparation for, for people, whether they were in the emergency services, was quite limited around big incidents. But obviously, with following the, the 90s and the and 2000s, and when you had the September the 11th incident, um, over the years, it's been a complete transition. But the, the resilience and business continuity industry now across the world is a, is a, a billion-dollar industry. Now, at this point, I asked Paul what he meant by an aptitude for disaster. Uh, I wanted to know what made someone good in a disaster and why someone might be attracted to situations where everything goes wrong. I would say all of the basics there about being being calm and being a leader and, and understanding, you know, the complexities of organisations and the complexities of how the, the public and the, the responders uh, react. Uh, and really problem solving and working out what is the you know on an informed decision basis about what about what needs to be done but actually the bottom line is my my career development from being a, a young teenager to, to being almost 50 or so when I left has been based around the caring side of people and and having that empathy and trying to find solutions for for people but the bottom line is I do care about me I care about the saving lives bit. That's what my thing's always been doing and about saving communities. So there it is. Some people saw the response to one of the most infamous disasters in living memory and sensed that things could be done better. And some people just wondered while staring at a fire evacuation plan, what if there was a fire right now? And that question spawned a whole career. Now, we're going to come back to that what-if question again in future episodes as well. If you can boil down the definition of continuity to simply having a plan in place when something goes wrong, then you can also boil down the methodology used to create that plan as simply asking, what if this happened? Uh, What would we do? And with that in mind, one final thing before we finish. I asked everyone I spoke to for one piece of advice for people who wanted to improve their resilience against disaster, but didn't have the time or maybe the experience to do so. Just one activity or conversation or exercise that people could do in a single day that would improve continuity. We'll close out each episode with advice from a different expert. This time, it's Stuart Dugid, Continuity Manager at BP. Know your people, look after your people, and have a method of accounting for your people. And then after that, you worry about your business process. It's all people. Yeah. You've got a duty of care as an employer to look after your staff. You've, uh, you've got to do that. It doesn't matter if they're in the building or if they're visitors or it could be somebody in, the, in an office that uh, you know, you're co-sharing with or whatever. There is a duty of care for the human being. Um, take take, take a, a time, say 11 o'clock tomorrow, and say, if this happened, how would I know that everyone is safe? And then uh, the answer is, well, uh, you might want to set up a call tree or something and have 
well, I would phone so-and-so, so-and-so would phone so and so, uh, three other people, and then the information would eventually come back. That's very slow, very lump, uh, cumbersome, and uh, it's liable to be broken because people are on holiday, people don't answer their phone. Um, or the other thing is that you may actually look towards an automated messaging system and that sort of thing. I believe uh, there are ways around social media to keep things private as well, so you could get everyone uh, subscribing to private uh, chats within social media, that might be a possibility that's uh, not too expensive and that sort of thing. So, uh, thanks for listening to episode one. Uh, I hope that was an interesting way to approach the topic. Uh, it became really clear from the conversations I had that behind a lot of the policies and compliance and regulatory standards that there were people uh, with some really great stories who genuinely care about keeping things running and making sure everyone is safe. Uh, so we're going to get to some more practical stuff next time uh, and take a look at what kinds of things are useful to plan for at the beginning and uh, how to do it. Um, but for the meantime, thank you very much. Uh, I think the next episode will be out sometime in June. And uh, if you sign up at the bcpcast.com, we'll let you know when it's out. Uh, otherwise, if you have any questions, you can send them to info at the bcpcast.com and uh, we'll get back to you. Thanks. Thanks.